Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, thank you to the worship team for leading us and reminding us that God is the main character here, right? I think often we show up and uh, we're tempted to think maybe that, you know, we're the main character or, uh, you know, we leave talking about how good the, the you know, the, the guitar player was um, or, you know, how rocking the, that young crazy drummer <laughs> is or... Uh, you know, that, you know, that message was, was pretty good or whatever it is, right? But the reality is that, that we ought to leave going, isn't God amazing, right? So I hope that whatever it is that we do, from song to, to unpacking the word to the community that happens, that we all leave going, God's the main character. He's the one that we're thinking about when we leave. And so thank you to the team for reminding us of that, right? That he is the one who is the main character today, who was the main character yesterday, who is the main character today, and who is, will always be the main character. And so let's, as we, as we're, we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff today, interesting things, and we're going to learn and hopefully be challenged, but, but let us not be distracted from the fact that we're here for God. We're here to grow. We're here to give Him glory. So with all that said, yeah, that's good. We can clap about that. With all that said, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here at Grant, and I want to welcome you, whether you are in person or online, as we continue to walk through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told to us by the Apostle Peter through the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you have attended Grant uh, for very long, you already know what the end of our service this morning will look like. On the first Sunday of every month, today included, as a church, we participate in communion together, intentionally remembering Jesus' sacrifice of his life so that we could have eternal life. But we don't stop there, do we? When we're finished with communion, we take the time to recite with one voice the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary declaration of the fundamental Christian beliefs held on to by the universal church of Jesus Christ from its infancy. And as we declare it, we remember what we are about, we remember what we believe, we remember what is most important and what binds the church together even when we may be divided on a variety of other things. Now, the majority of the creed, if we were to walk through it line by line, is obvious, right? Or self-evident. We, we say things like, we believe in God, right? We believe that he created everything. We believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of sins and to lead us into his resurrection. We believe that he will return, bringing with him eternal life and for the unified church that he has established, right? These are the most important tenets of the faith as affirmed by Christ followers for nearly 2,000 years, which is what makes a strange inclusion in the creed so interesting. You see, there are five persons present or named in the creed. There are the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus, used to emphasize the miraculous virgin birth. And then there is one additional human, just one other person 
mentioned, who seems a little bit out of place in terms of of their unquestioned importance to Christians over 2,000 millennia. Can anyone tell me who that person is? Pontius Pilate. We declare that we believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. For the past 2,000 years, Christians have been reciting the name Pontius Pilate as they listed their non-negotiable theological beliefs, which is actually quite bizarre when you think about it, isn't it? Especially in light of that which the creed doesn't include. You see, in the creed, there is no mention of the Bible, right? There is no mention of the Torah. There's no mention of baptism or evangelism. There's no mention of sanctification, of spiritual gifts, or prayer. There's no mention of other important persons like John the Baptist, the disciples, the apostles. There's no mention of Caesar, Herod, the Sanhedrin. There's no mention of angels, demons, even Satan. But one name that is not absent is Pontius Pilate, who history tells us is nothing but a third-rate Roman politician that no one would even have remembered if it wasn't for the gospel's accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. So why? Right? Why is Pontius Pilate's inclusion in the preeminent theological declaration of the church so important? Why is his name to be stated along with only Mary and God himself? Why don't we recite Jesus was betrayed by Judas or he was handed over by the Sanhedrin? Why Pontius Pilate? Well, the primary reason is that the name Pontius Pilate reinforces the historicity of Jesus' death and ministry. You see, naming Pilate provides a a historical figure who can be verified outside of Scripture to emphasize the what and when of Jesus' crucifixion, right? Church, Jesus didn't just die generally. He died on a specific date in history, and he died because a real governor condemned him to death, and real soldiers delivered real blows that caused real wounds before they really nailed him to a real cross, right? And so when we recite the name Pontius Pilate, we are proclaiming that Jesus' death was not merely symbolic, that Jesus' death was not uh, simply figurative, That Jesus' life was not only legend, his resurrection was not merely uh, metaphoric. Rather, his bodily death and resurrection literally happened. The gospel writers were not creating a story or a fictional narrative. No, they were recounting history. History that could be verified. History that could be fact-checked. By the first hearers. History that, would, when told, would have been received as truth by those who heard it first because they already knew some of the details. In, in fact, communicating Jesus' death not as fiction but historical fact was so important to the early church that all four of the gospel writers were sure to include the account of Pontius Pilate, something that they failed to do on many other fronts. Well, it just so happens that today, before we recite his name in the creed at the end of our service, our study in Mark brings us to the very text that explains how Pontius Pilate became the one forever linked to the historical death of Jesus. 
And so I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 15, where we'll begin today starting at verse 1. All right, reading the word of the Lord from Mark 15, starting at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we uh, encounter it today that that we would leave different than how we came as a result of what you uh, teach us and challenge us with. Amen. Now before we dig into the text that we just read, I want us to unpack a little bit about what we know about this Pontius Pilate that we've been talking about and, and just read about in our text today. First of all, uh, the Bible calls Pilate the the governor, um, but his official title, as archaeologists have found carved into stone in the area, was prefect of Judea, right? His official title was prefect of Judea. Now, a prefect was appointed to govern a specific area within the Roman Empire on behalf of Caesar. And Pilate was appointed uh, the fifth prefect over the area of Judea. So four had gone before him. He was the fifth prefect over this area. And he served in the position for 11 years, between the years 26 and 37, before he was fired and banished by then Roman Emperor Caligula. Now, uh, Pilate's 11-year tenure in this position was the longest of anyone who had served in this post, which at first seems like he must have done a good job, right, for staying so long. But, but it actually means precisely the opposite. You see, the governorship of Judea wasn't exactly a political aspiration for anyone, right? It was actually one of the lowest rungs on the ladder for a Roman administrator. And so staying in that outpost for 11 years had less to do with success and had more to do with Pilate's inability to climb the Roman ladder And thus, he remained stuck in Judea for longer than any prefect would hope. Well, throughout his long tenure in Judea, we know that Pilate was seen as a hard man. First century Jewish historians Josephus and Philo both indicate that Pilate was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. 
sometimes deliberately provoking the Jews under his authority to display his power over them. And he brutally put down any protests or insurrections that arose during his tenure. But we also know uh, about Pilate from both the Gospels and from Josephus and Philo is that he knew when to back down for the purposes of self-preservation. Right, there are accounts of Pilate's deliberate provoking of the Jews, setting up idolatrous golden shields and images of Roman emperors in Herod's palace and even in the temple courts, which is seen as extreme sacrilege to the Jews. But just before things would escalate to the point of, of involving his superiors, he would back down and remove the items for fear that if the Jews sent an embassy to Rome, in the words of Philo, They would also expose the rest of his conduct as governor by stating in full the briberies, the insults, the robberies, the outrages and wanton injustices, the executions without trial, constantly repeated, the ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. Not a great picture of a good leader, is it? And so the historical picture that we get of Pilate is of a man who was cruel and conniving until the point of personal cost, at which point he could play nice to save his own skin. And we seem to see that picture in this account as well, as he concedes to the masses against his own best judgment to keep the peace and to ensure stability for himself. Now, why is all of this important? Well, there can be a tendency within the church, and this is true historically, to make Pilate out to be somewhat of a good guy in the story, right? And so the story goes that the Jews are bad, while Pilate is sympathetic to Jesus and generally good and and relatively innocent in this whole thing. But the reality is that Pilate was not a good man, Right? As we discussed, he consistently oppressed those under his care and ultimately caves to them here out of self-preservation so he can remain in power and continue to oppress them for years to come. And so while he may not be as convinced of Jesus' need to be crucified that day as the members of the Sanhedrin are that we will read, He certainly was not hesitant because of his high character or out of sympathy or kindness towards Jesus or or even a keen desire for justice or truth. Because regardless of what he thinks, regardless of truth, regardless of what high high character would compel him to do, Pilate ultimately makes the order. And it is by his voice and no other that Jesus is condemned to death just as his voice had condemned many before and would condemn many after Jesus. Well, now that we have that background, a little bit more about Pilate, let's walk through the text to see the role that Pilate plays when he enters the scene of Jesus' passion narrative. And our text picks up, if you remember from two weeks ago, after Jesus has been declared as worthy of death by the members of the Sanhedrin at their secret late night meeting on the Sabbath at the home of the high priest. And as a result, Jesus is beaten and held until morning, which is where our text picks up in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. 
So when morning hits, right after this kind of mock or fake trial that they have at the home of the high priest, and they say, this is not a good guy, he is worthy of death, they, 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 uh, they bind Jesus up the next morning, which, as we discussed last week, is completely unnecessary, right? Because Jesus is walking this path willingly, right? He's not defended himself. He's not tried to run. He's not tried to fight. He's submitted himself to the Father's will and will walk obediently all the way to the cross. But for whatever reason, they bind him up, whether that was out of a sense of control, to make themselves out to be the victorious captors, if it was to humiliate Jesus or to portray Jesus as dangerous as they brought him to Pilate, we don't know. But the narrative of a man bound by, which, by that which could never hold him continues as they head to Herod's palace where Pilate was likely staying. And as verse one continues, they delivered him to Pilate or handed him over. An act which has significant theological and prophetic implications. Listen to commentator R.C. Sproul's take on this. Note that Mark says the Jews delivered him to Pilate. Jesus had told his disciples that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, Mark 10, 33. But the Old Testament had prophesied this deliverance centuries before. It foretold that the Savior would be judged and killed outside the camp. Just as the sins of ancient Israel were symbolically transferred to a scapegoat, which was then driven out of the camp into the wilderness, into the outer darkness, Leviticus 16, the Messiah was to die at the hands of the Gentiles outside the city of God, symbolically cut off from the presence of God and the people of God. Thus, in one of the most messianic of the Psalms, the psalmist cries out, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, Psalm 22. This prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was delivered to Pilate. And so Jesus is is not only physically rejected by his people, by the leaders, But his being handed over was a a symbolic rejection which emphasizes just what Jesus would do outside of the camp for the very people on the inside. Well, now that he's in the hands of Pilate, the members of the Sanhedrin present their case. Verse 4 says that they accused him of many things, including the charge that Jesus claimed himself to be a king which is evident by Pilate's question in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? What an interesting question. Considering Jesus and the ruling Jews had not used this language at all in the discussion leading up to this one. If you remember from two weeks ago at the home of the high priest, offense was taken at the self-identification of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the son of man, even the judge, but neither Jesus nor the Sanhedrin referred to him as king. That language never came up. And so what's happening here is that the members of the Sanhedrin are translating Jesus' words into something that Pilate could convict Jesus of, right? A capital crime for which Jesus could be killed. You see, the Sanhedrin's Uh, concerns about Jesus' blasphemy, Jesus' messianic identification would not have been much concern to Pilate. He could actually care less what they saw as blasphemy. Remember, Pilate himself desecrated the temple with idols with no regard for the beliefs of, of the Jews. And so they used language that would be of Roman interest. Accusations that Jesus claimed to be a king 
a charge of sedition or subversion to the kingship of Caesar alone. Luke's account of this event sheds more light on the argument of the Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 2. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. While taxes and kingship were not a part of the Sanhedrin's concern, they interpreted Jesus' language for Pilate to convince him that Jesus was to be convicted in Roman court, the court that had the authority to enact capital punishment. And it's interesting to note that this title, King of the Jews, which shows up here, follows Jesus around from this point on until his death. Right? We read this title six more times in this chapter as Jews and Romans alike apply this name to Jesus as a form of mockery. Ironic, isn't it, that the title they will taunt him with from this point on is actually a very appropriate title, one that was and is rightfully Jesus to bear, which is why Jesus doesn't push back when Pilate asks him. Verse 2, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Jesus, letting the truth stand, as we emphasized last time, doesn't correct Pilate. And in doing so, Jesus admits to being a king. But his, his reservation tells us that he doesn't identify as the kind of king that Pilate implies about him. His answer rings something like, yes, I am a king, but your idea of kingship is different than mine. Or as John's gospel recalls this conversation in John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, Jesus states that his kingdom is not of this world. It does not value what the world values. It does not chase after the things of this world. It is not defined by power, by pleasure, by prestige. It is above all of those things because it is above this world. Now, as we ready ourselves to move on, perhaps it's, we need to let those, rings, those words ring in our ears for a little bit. Church, God's kingdom is not of this world. Right? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and just remind them of that fact. Say, God's kingdom is not of this world. I always think it's funny when I do that because some people are saying way more than I told you to. <laughs> Goes on way longer. So it's like, hey, here's my chance. Hey, uh, Applebee's for lunch. Okay, back. Now, I, I, I'm not sure who needs to hear what you whispered at first to your neighbors. Perhaps all of us need to hear that God's kingdom is not of this world. Perhaps we all need to be reminded that God's kingdom, God's purposes, God's ways are not our own ways. As we read in Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so when we reflect on what we so desire here, 
when we reflect on what we are giving ourselves to here, when we reflect on the battles that we are fighting here, may we be challenged not to fight merely earthly battles. Power, prestige, position, comfort, Luxury, health, wealth are not the a priori values in God's kingdom. They are not worth fighting for. Here, we witness Jesus laying down his life, giving up earthly power, giving up health and safety and comfort, laying down his pride and prestige, carrying nothing with him in terms of earthly value. Church, our king shows us another way. And it looks nothing like what success in this world looks like. And so as we consider what we are chasing, what we are pursuing, what we are fighting for, may we have the courage to follow in the example of our king. Well, it's hard to tell what Pilate understands here. But it seems as though he does not see Jesus as the threat that the Sanhedrin make him out to be. In fact, in both uh, Luke and John's Gospels, Pilate states explicitly, I find no basis for charge against this man. And here he, he immediately proceeds to offer Jesus up to be released, asking the crowd, you know, what crime has he committed? It seems as though Pilate, and again, we need to emphasize that he's, he's not doing this because he's a good guy, but he just doesn't see a threat. And knowing that Jesus had become popular with the people of Jerusalem, he tries to use an out clause to release Jesus and go on about keeping the peace during this festival. You see, Likely, as an offering of perceived good faith or to commemorate the Jews being released from captivity years before, Pilate had grown accustomed to releasing one prisoner during the festival of unleavened bread at the, result, at the request of the people. And he felt like this would be the perfect out clause so as not to stir up conflict with the Sanhedrin while at the same time releasing Jesus. And so Pilate asked the crowd that has gathered, who up until this point has been enamored with Jesus, if they would like him to release Jesus based on this tradition. We read about this in verse 6. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Skipping to verse 8. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. And this actually seems like a pretty good plan for Pilate, doesn't it? Pilate can have his cake and eat it too. He can release Jesus, which the crowd will love, and he can blame it on the crowd so the religious leaders will back off. But what Pilate doesn't anticipate is the parallel narrative that is unfolding. Look at what's inserted into the middle of verse 6 and 8. Verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. You see, ever since the Romans had taken over Jerusalem, there had been uprisings from within. 
with Jewish revolutionaries or insurrectionists, freedom fighters as they would have been thought among the people, taking arms against the Romans in an attempt to free themselves from the tyranny of the empire. Right? Many of these were from a religious group called the Zealots, whose acting motto was no king but God, and who participated in what they believed was God's deliverance of his people out of the hands of the Romans. Now, while the zealots were not an extremely large group, they and other revolutionaries were quite popular among the people, like contemporary Robin Hoods fighting against oppression. Well, evidently, there was one such insurrectionist named Barabbas, being held at the same time as Jesus for his participation in the murder of a Roman official. And when the chief priest saw that Pilate was offering up a prisoner with the intention of releasing Jesus, verse 11 says that they stirred up the crowd to ask for this contemporary hero, this freedom fighter, to be released instead of Jesus. Which I think is a really important thing for us to understand. Because I think that often when we read this story, we have a hard time understanding why the crowd would ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. But I think that's because we, when we think of Barabbas, we think of this despicable menace to society. But in reality, Barabbas was someone that the Jews would have wanted released. He, he was somewhat of a local hero. He worked actively for their cause, standing up to the Romans who oppressed them. Matthew 27, 16 says that Barabbas was well known for this. Friends, read popular. And so what the religious leaders are doing is not pinning Jesus against some scum of the earth criminal. Rather, they are playing into the revolutionary desires of the people. We want Braveheart, don't we? We want Louis Riel. We want Robin Hood. We want the one who fights for us. And for the first time, we see a marked change in the general attitude towards Christ of the crowd. Where the crowd who has been sympathetic to Jesus thus far is forced to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. Forced to choose between one they have seen fight against Rome and one who has in their view fought mostly against them. Their traditions, their temple system, and their leaders. And this choice is something that we tend to gloss over in this narrative. This, this choice, listen to this, between two Jesuses. Yes, you heard that right. Interesting fact, Barabbas' name was also Jesus. Look at Matthew 27, 16. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Right? Just when you thought this was, you know, wasn't going to be interesting. This revolutionary's name was Jesus, right? And Barabbas was his, simply his qualifier, right? Or, or what we would call a last name, right? The scriptures do this often in distinguishing Jesus Christ as well, right? So we hear, we see the qualifier Christ put behind Jesus Christ so that we know who they're talking about. Or, or we hear Jesus spoken of as Jesus of Nazareth, right? This is where he came from. Or when Jesus was growing up, he would have been known as Jesus bar Joseph, right? Bar meaning son of. So Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph. It's an identifier to know which Jesus this was because there's lots of them. And so Barabbas is simply this man's qualifier, right? Bar, 
son of, and what does Abbas mean? Where have we heard that before? Abba means father, right? So now think of the irony here. This man is known as Jesus bar Abbas, or translated Jesus, son of the father. So the crowd is choosing between two Jesuses, one who is called son of the father and one who really is the only true son of the father, one who fought for political freedom and one who is working for spiritual freedom. And as the text goes along, we see that that with some prompting and pressure from the chief priests, the crowd present chose the counterfeit savior. The one who was merely called son of the father but did not submit to his will. The one who championed political freedom but could not even offer a sliver of real freedom. Verse 11. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And it's here where we see, as R.C. Sproul points out, turns out the crowd did not want the true son of the father. They wanted a different Jesus, a Jesus they could live with, a Jesus who would not make them feel guilty, a Jesus of this world. And for 2,000 years since, the world has cried for a different Jesus, one more like us. Which again forces us into reflection, doesn't it? How often... Do we find ourselves wanting Jesus to be something different than he actually is? How often would we choose or vote for a counterfeit Christ if he offered us something more like what we want than what we actually need? How many of us have been tempted to give up on the real Jesus, the real son of the father, when he didn't come through as we hoped he would or when following him turns out to be a lot different than what we had imagined. May this text encourage us to keep the faith in who Jesus actually is because Jesus Barabbas would never make good on his mission. The Jews were never freed from the Romans. In fact, as Jesus predicted earlier, it only got worse. While for those who side with the man from Galilee, the true son of the father they will ultimately end up getting everything they never knew they desperately needed. May we be people who grant the right Jesus freedom in our own lives even so that he may do whatever he sees fit to do because he is God and we are not and neither is anything else we may be tempted to put our faith in. Well, after the crowd makes their decision, Pilate asks what he should do with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And it's like in this moment that the mob mentality kicks in. Right? The crowd has been convinced that the way of Barabbas is the way. That Jesus is not what they need, not who they should follow. 
And with all the blasphemous rumors swirling about around Jesus, they decide, again, with strong encouragements from the Sanhedrin, that they're better off without him. And they demand Jesus' crucifixion. When Pilate appeals, asking what for, they give no answer. Did you notice that? But what do they do? They simply shout louder. Which, as an aside, seems to be the way that many conversations go in our culture these days, don't they? As a culture, we seem to have lost the ability to dialogue meaningfully. And our default is not to listen or to thoughtfully articulate our stances, but rather to accuse, to speak louder, or just keep yelling. I know this is totally an aside, but church, may we be people, right, who don't join the cultural shouting matches, whether that's in person or online, but who engage thoughtfully and meaningfully through the questions that we ask and through the answers that we give when we are asked them, right? As James encourages us in uh, chapter one of his letter, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Well, unfortunately, in this case this morning, the inarticulate yelling wins the day. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, the big, bad, tough prefect, sees what a difficult scenario this could be for him. And as usual, in the name of self-preservation and keeping the peace, he caves to the demands of the crowd and does what only he can do, sentences Jesus to death and hands him over to be crucified. And with that, his appearance in the story is over. Now, the interesting thing about this passage and those leading up to it is that there's so much blame to go around, depending on your bent for why Jesus was crucified, isn't there? Right, upon reading this passage, for some, it's the religious leaders who should bear the blame, right? They should be blamed for Jesus' death because it's their own self-interest that started this whole thing. For others, it's Pilate who should be blamed because he pulled the trigger and it was under his authority, his command, that Jesus was killed. Still others blame the crowd because they chose Barabbas rather than asking for Jesus to be released. To some, even Jesus' disciples, who perhaps could have yelled in the other direction, swaying the crowd in the other way, could be blamed for their absence here. And still, some who are still angry with Judas blame him for his betrayal. Right? There's certainly enough blame to go around. But as we move toward the communion table this morning, church, it's important to remind ourselves about what is really going on here. Friends, Jesus did not die on the cross because he was betrayed or because he was handed over or because he was sentenced to death, or because he was abandoned. Jesus died for the salvation of the world because his death brings forgiveness to sinners like you and me. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus Christ came into the world, why? To save sinners, 
of whom I am the worst. I'm not telling everyone to get a tattoo, but if you get a tattoo, that might not be a bad one to remind yourself of every day. Church, this needs to be the lens through which we always view Christ's death. That I am a sinner and I need saving. And Jesus willingly took each and every step towards the cross so that he could save me. So that I could be, ref- could be the blessed one spoken of in Psalm 32, 1-2, which says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. As we reflect, let's not make this about anybody else, a Roman prefect, an easily swayed crowd, fearful religious leaders. Salvation isn't about anyone else. This is about you and this is about me and what a loving God willingly did to save us. And while the what and the how has its details, right? Jesus did use the religious leaders who accused him. He did use a third-rate politician who sentenced him. He did use the crowd who turned on him, the disciples who abandoned him. But the why behind it all, the reason behind it all is love. Love for you and love for me. Just like we read this morning about Barabbas. Like Barabbas, we are guilty. Just like Barabbas, we get to walk in freedom. Because Jesus, the innocent one, took our place and died the death that we deserve. When I was in high school, there was a Christian band called the Supertones who sang a song uh, that stuck with me all these years. And the lyrics speak of this very passage that we've been studying this morning. And the chorus goes like this. My sin yells crucify louder than the mob that day. My sin yells crucify louder than any mouth. My sin yells crucify louder than the mob that day. My sin yells crucify. 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 Friends, my sin is what led Jesus to the cross. Your sin is what led Jesus to the cross. The sin of the world is what led Jesus to the cross. Not because he was forced, but because he chose to do whatever it took to forgive us and bring us into everlasting life in the presence of God. As 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly giving up your life to save me from my sin. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca 
or on social media at at Grant Memorial Church. <laughs>